Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Greg Wells here and really excited to have you back for another episode of the podcast where each week I do my best to deconstruct excellence and share with you ideas that can make a huge difference in your life from a health, well-being and high performance perspective. And this week we are going to do another masterclass. This format has become incredibly popular and we have some amazing guests who have spoken about peak performance. So I wanted to break that down a little bit further and share with you these interviews in aggregate where we can interview different experts on the same topic and explore the themes, the truths, the patterns that w- that emerge so that we can then, of course, take those insights and apply them to our own life. So this week, we have Ben Titley, Olympic coach who has dozens of Olympic medals to his credit. Jean-Francois Menard, who's a mental skills coach for the Olympic team, and Ray Zahab, who is one of the most prolific adventurers on the planet. These people are some of the top minds in the world uh, and highly experiential. They have done what, you know, they, they, they basically, they walk the talk, if, if you will. So let's dig into it. This is an incredible masterclass. I know you're going to enjoy it. All about peak performance with Ben Titley, Jean-Francois Menard, and Ray Zahab. Ben, thanks for joining us. How you doing? Doing well, thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. Right on. So where am I finding you today in the middle of this very strange time? You are currently finding me <laughs> actually in lockdown, in a quarantine, in my wow. spare bedroom. So, right. uh, yeah, we had an incident at, at my um, daughter's school. And so the kids have come home and tests and all that stuff actually went for a COVID test today. So I'll get my results back tomorrow. So you currently get me stuck in what I'm sure hundreds of thousands of people around the world have experienced. And it's not fun to be perfect. It's not fun. Well, let's talk about something fun and distract ourselves from the insanity for for a little while. We'll just talk training. How did you get into sport? How did you get into coaching? Like what's the what's the origin story just for everyone listening? So I'm the eldest of four brothers. And so for anyone that is the oldest in a, in a bunch of boys, you have to be quite creative as a, as a young person to make up games and um, a lot of playing outdoors, grew up in the countryside. So this is obviously pre-computers and pre-phones and everything else. So made up games, was quite creative with things, would find sp- and sports is probably the easiest thing for a bunch of boys to, to get on with in their own time without needing much supervision. So that was it really. And then swimming became one of my major sports that I did as a kid. I mean, I did lots of sports at school. Ended up going to Loughborough University. Um, Loughborough, for those that don't know, is probably one of the premier sports universities in the world. It's um, renowned for engineering as well, actually, but sports is probably its its main focus point. And went there to, well, actually I'll backtrack, attempted to go there, failed mathematics, in my last year of high school and had to resit a year. So I actually stayed back a year, which actually looking back was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. It gave me another year of teaching slash coaching experience um, where I was in a, in a club program. It let me mature somewhat. 18 year old boys are not usually the most mature individuals on the planet. And so actually I think that set me up in a, in a better way before I went off to university. I remember my parents saying, well, you know, and then my my dad in particular was very sporty, a high level runner. And um, but I remember them sitting me down on the sofa and saying, well, you know, why do you want to study sports? And I said, well, I want to be a swimming coach. And, you know, they're not not supportive, but they said, well, why do you want to be a swimming coach? No one makes much money being a swimming coach. And I said, well, it's just what interests me. And this was probably at the age of 18. 
And so I actually went to Loughborough University a week early, slept on a friend's floor, went to the coach there. And my thought process was that if I want to get involved in the program and help out coaching, I've got to kind of be the early bird that catches the worm. So I went there a week early, slept on the floor, took my coaching resume to the to the gentleman that was in charge at the time and said, look, I'd like to be involved. Give me whatever you want. And they did. They gave me the worst group in the worst. We had, <laughs> we had a pool with no lane lines that was no deeper than one meter, which I think was 20 yards long. So it was like enough space for three lanes. It was one meter deep the whole way. It was like a raised pool. Um, and just started from there. And that developed three months later. I became the assistant coach three months later. Then things rolled on again and, and did my degree and master's in sports science. And I mean, I was the head coach to the World University Games team before I was actually graduated university. I was still in my undergraduate when I was the head coach of the British team at the World University Games. So um, things moved quite quickly for me. Uh, my first Commonwealth Games as a coach, I was 21. My first world championships on the senior British uh, team, sort of on the senior Olympic type staff, was when I was 24. Uh, first Olympic Games when I was 27. And I was actually head coach of, of the British Olympic team when I was 31. And then head coach of the Canadian team as well before my 40s. So head coach of two different countries while still in my 30s. And um, I've, had, I've been fortunate to work in some awesome places with some amazing athletes, which obviously makes a huge Makes the biggest difference. Um, and that's it, really. Uh, if you want me to speak about how my sort of coaching philosophy developed, that's probably another question you've got coming. But I was very fortunate when I went to Loughborough. It was it was back when all of the coaches in, in Loughborough were all sort of penned into the same office. And so my formative years, if you like, had to be a little bit outside the box thinking. We only had at the time a four-lane 25 yard pool so probably what one sixth the size of an olympic pool asbestos ridden built in the 1930s i'm convinced i will die of asbestos poisoning before <laughs> yeah. I do. um but had to think outside the box sometimes sessions are only 45 minutes long and, and things like that it was the only pool on campus at the time and uh but but being in a in a in an office with you know, the national volleyball coach, if I wanted to learn more about plyometrics or how can I get kids more dynamic off the blocks or it's not really plyometrics, but off, off a turn, for example, off a wall when they push off, I could go and watch some of the volleyball um, sessions, the national team play. If I wanted to learn more about track starts, I remember there's a guy called, I think his name was Colin Bavell. And um, he was the national sprint hurdles coach. And, and I remember for a six week period, I just said, look, can you take my athletes to teach them how to do track starts on land? And so I went down and shadowed him and, and saw how track and field would, would train. Same thing with lots of different sports. So my whole formative years were actually learned, not so much learning from swimming. I did have a great swimming mentor, a guy called Ian Armager, uh, but um mostly from other sports, from thinking about physical performance, mental performance, but not necessarily being from a traditional swimming model. So, Okay, I've got tons of questions. This is awesome. What do you think it was that allowed you to progress so fast? So to go from like not coaching to... But I love the I love the story of like being first and just being like, I'll take anything. And they give you the, mm -hmm. the worst athletes in the worst pool in the worst environment. But you still managed to very rapidly go through to your progression was super quick. So what do you think it was? And you don't need to be humble or anything like that. Like, what do you think it was that enabled you to make such a fast progression through the ranks? 
Um, well, I guess to me, it it didn't seem like it was that fast. It, it just started earlier. So I started teaching and coaching swimming when I was 15, 16. By the time I went to university, you're 18, 19. So you're already sort of three years into it. You had three years of university, two years, I guess, before Commonwealth Games and bits and pieces. So you're already six years into a, a coaching career. It's just that I started right. a lot earlier to a certain extent. Um, I think that... I had, a, I had a thirst for knowledge. I wanted to learn. It didn't matter who I'd learn off. I just wanted to learn. doesn't mean that I would take what, you know, you said or somebody else said and have that as my philosophy, but I would like to take it in. And if I thought it was good, I'd put it somewhere and use it or adapt it. And if it wasn't, then I'd let it go. I think the multi-sport thing helped a lot. I think I was fortunate when I got to sort of the age of 23, 24 that a guy called Bill Sweetnam, a very famous guy in the world of swimming coaching, came to Britain as a performance director. And I wouldn't say took me under his wing because he was a royal pain in the ass, you know, like he was tough. It was tough love. And you either survived and thrived or you or you didn't and you moved on. And you did something else. Um, and I thrived in that environment. I thrived on being challenged. I, I'm always a big believer that if, if someone asks me why I'm doing something and I can't explain it back to them, then why the hell am I doing it? You know, and and but a lot of coaches don't like to be challenged like that. Well, this is what I've done because I've always done it, mm. and that isn't really a, a a smart response. So, when Bill came in, I was then you know I had the love for a university background. I had the sports coaches links from other sports. I then got exposed to lots of other coaching philosophies from around the world, Australia particularly. Um, I would be sent on courses. I would go actually and speak at conferences. I think from the age of 24, I spoke at the World Coaches Conference. Um, and so everything was sort of just thrust upon me. And I remember my first World Long Course Championships as a team, as a staff member on, on staff was in 2001. And I remember being on the deck and the group of athletes I had I could mention their names to you, but a lot of them won't mean much to most people. But they were all extremely experienced international athletes, medal winning, Britain's most famous ones. And some of them were like 30 years old. And there's me at the age of 23, 24. And I remember thinking, well, Ben, you gotta, you got to get things going here. Like if, if they sense, you know, it's like dogs, if they sense a weakness or if they sense that you're not in control, this is going to turn south real quick. And I remember standing at the end of a pool in Hong Kong, outdoors at the university there and saying, look, and am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yeah, we swear all the time. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we drop F-bombs, S-bombs, whatever okay. you want. It's all good. But I, but I remember I remember stopping them all and saying, look, if, if you don't want me to help you, fuck off. There's a spare lane on the far side. You want to swim somewhere else? Get over there. You want my help? I'm here to help you. And, you know, there's wide eyes looking up. But I think that and that 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 then changed the dynamic of the situation very quickly. And I've never actually had to to really go through anything like that again. That sort of set the table then once I was through my first major meet. But that that uh, mentality of, look, I'm here to I'm here to help. I'm here to progress. You. I'm here to be world leading. If you're not, find somewhere else to do it, because it's it's not what motivates me. Um and so I think that's probably stayed with me throughout my career. I don't really have to say those things anymore. It's just kind of a given when you have results and you have a resume and you have a reputation, then you kind of don't need to be the person to tell that. But um, yeah, that was that was probably where where I, I got a lot of my fundamental learning and, and set things out very early. And then I was fortunate enough, and again, you make your own look, but UK sports started a... Um, 
kind of a secret thing. They've made it a bit more mainstream now and they actually have people apply to it. But they did a, a, a thing again. In, I couldn't remember the exact year. You're probably talking more like 2005, six, seven, where they would get the top five or six coaches from the main Olympic sports in the UK. And Olympic sports in the UK is a lot bigger than it here is in Canada and Europe, actually. It's big in Europe and, and the UK. And um, every sort of four, five, six months, we would get together as a group of maybe six coaches, six sports scientists, so the respective sports scientists from each from each sport. And we, my sports scientist at the time was a guy called Tim Kerrison, who's big in the world of, of cycling, Team Ineos now, Team Sky prior. And, um, and we would go visit whichever sport was hosting. So let's say it was rowing. We would go down on, I'm making this up, a Tuesday afternoon. We would um, watch the Tuesday afternoon training session. All the coaches and sports scientists would then go out for dinner, usually somewhere nice, drink beers, and just chat about what we'd seen, about sport in general, really just have a good time and converse. We'd then wake up the next morning, go um, watch their morning session, be involved in the session, ask questions. You know, if it's rowing, take sort of stroke rates or, or ride along the bike along the two kilometer course and ask questions of the coach, listen to the communication um, and the feedback. And then we would go and listen to the debrief of that session. And then the coach who was hosting would then do a presentation to, again, small group, 12, 12 or so people about their philosophy, about their cycle, about their uh, training outlook, I guess, and, and and then invite feedback. So it was a, it was a question. It was a two-way conversation. And there was no real threat there because, again, I don't know anything about rowing but I know about performance. I know about humans. I know about sport. And so you could ask questions. Well, have you ever thought about this? And they'll be like, actually, no, or actually, yes. And we didn't like it. And we did it this way. I remember one of them, we went to sailing and Britain's pretty good at sailing. And I got put with the, um, winds, is it windsur The people that like pump, they have the big thing. And I think it was a wind, the windsurfers. Yeah. Windsurfing. And, um, and the guy was Olympic silver medalist, I believe. And his coach was a relatively young guy, a little bit older than me. And we went out on this little tiny. And I remember thinking, what the hell am I going to learn from, you know, windsurfing? But you know what? I, it, lots of things. The feedback when the windsurfer gets back to the, the boat that we were on. And I was pretty seasick probably at the time, but gets back to the boat and his forearms were just exhausted from pumping that sail for, for the first two hours of the workout. And so the coach, rather than anything critical coming out first, it was let the guy settle down, let him get his composure. And then it was very gentle, positive type feedback. Um, five minutes later, the guy had calmed down. They'd have a bit more of a discussion about what had happened. And then the guy went off again. And then when we went back to land, the whole thing had been videoed from, from the cliffs and they would actually sit and have their breakfast whilst watching the feedback. And that was when in the warm, in the you know with a bit of food in their belly with it being everything a bit more calm that's when the more um critical feedback let's say yeah. would take place and i remember thinking wow you know like that's interesting so i can take that into my coaching and philosophy and everything else um because the swimming coaches were often the masters of of 10 second communication i mean i've yeah. probably spoke here for 10 minutes without you saying anything so it's pretty bad communication for 10 seconds <laughs> but in swimming coaching an athlete will touch the wall depending on the repeat you've got 10 to 20 to 30 seconds to get across a message you've got to be succinct you've got to understand how the athlete is you've got to make sure they're aware that you're 
you're speaking to them. And um, and so that was very interesting for me from a feedback perspective. So I guess to summarize, I was involved with a lot of sports. I was given access to a lot of quality thinkers in and around performance and sport. And um, yeah, I just developed from there, I guess. Yeah, there's so much to take away from that. Just like the, I talk a lot about the dream team concept, like surrounding with yourself with experts who elevate you and who you can also contribute to. And it's interesting that you basically did that with like track coach, with volleyball coach, with the windsurfing coach, and you sort of learned from all of these people around you. Totally brilliant. Um, when I was at the National Coaching Institute teaching physiology, I remember getting all the coaches in the room at the beginning of the year from all the different sports, maybe like 20 of them. And they all thought their sport was completely unique and totally different from everyone else's sport. And by three weeks in, they're all talking and visiting each other because they learned, realized very quickly that you can learn so much from all of the people around you if you open yourself up to that. So that's awesome. I also really like the idea of not giving the critical feedback in the heat of the moment, but being patient enough to wait until there might be the conditions for the athlete to actually hear what you're saying. Like, that's really interesting to me too. Like, because if you're in the moment, the heat of the moment, the, the, the urge is to say it all right then, because you need to get it out. But in fact, the athlete doesn't need you to do that. They, they need you to wait. Um, or they need to be put in a position where they can actually yeah, well, I mean, if you, if, That's interesting. If, yeah, if, if, you, if you react like that, if you communicate with anger, there is a time, and, and I, I'm not you know, some Zen master, there is a time and a place to lose it. There is a time and a place to make a point if someone's effort in particular isn't what it should be or attitude isn't what it should be. But really, if you communicate when angry, it's probably more for you than it is for the person you're supposed to be helping because they're going to tune you out probably. And again, every now and again, I think a little blowout is needed and that sort of sets the tone and then you don't need to worry about it for another, you know, three months or three weeks or three years, depending on how big the blowout was. Yeah. But um, yeah, if you're communicating with anger, you're really just communicating for yourself. You're venting. You're not actually improving somewhat. So. Yeah, fascinating. If you could summarize your coaching philosophy now, where do you think you've landed now? Like what what uh how how could you sort of put it together these days? That's a honest answer. I don't know. I know that I set high standards. I know that I try to lead by example. I know that um I try to individualize things as as much as is humanly possible. Um, I, I understand that even swimming, it is an individual sport, but there is a team aspect to the training environment. Um, but everybody is different. And so it's quite difficult for me to say with regards to a general philosophy. I honestly think, you know, there's an intense adaptability to the way that I try to, to coach. And it has certain um bedrocks or foundations of beliefs that I think are important. You know, I, I'm a big believer that the vast majority of training you do needs to be specific or specific for a reason. Again, to an earlier comment of mine, if someone asks me a reason why I'm doing something and I can't explain it to them in a way that they then say, okay, I get it. Well, then why am I doing it? You know, I need to be able to open myself to questions, even if they're critical. You mm -hmm. mentioned before about surrounding yourself with world-class people. I've been very fortunate through my, you know, the first 20 years of my career to have that. And that has got me to a point now where I probably don't, don't need that on a daily basis. Um, I would like to have it 
more often than I have here in Canada. But I also think that it's important to surround yourself with the right people. I've been surrounded by smart people who can't communicate their knowledge to me in a way that is going to be useful for me to work with an athlete. You know, I could have the world's greatest physiologist, for example, and they could tell me, well, no, Ben, the science says this, the science says this, this is wrong, what you're doing. And I can turn around and say, well, okay, I, I appreciate that point of view, but I'm telling you that this works. I, I can't tell you the, the exact minutiae of a science for it, but you're not helping me get from your, you know, well, this, this has been shown through testing. This has been shown through the literature. You're not helping me take that to the real level to an athlete. And so I've had numerous occasions where we've had smart people around us and we've actually chosen not to work with them anymore because they're really not providing us with anything beneficial. So I hope that makes sense. That probably comes across as some arrogant tool. It's like, you know, science. no, not at all. But, um, but again, I've, I've done science. I've, I've been through the yeah. university system. I get it. <laughs> yeah. But I've also done the real world system. And, and, and that's that's where I need help to operate. What do you mean that academics don't know everything straight up off the top? Like, come on, <laughs> what <laughs> coaches should always listen to their physiologist. Actually, to be honest with you, when I was so I'm the physiologist in this in this scenario, and when I was working with coaches, I felt like my job was often to figure out why what they were doing was working and then explain that to them because coaches were often ahead of what the research had shown. Mm -hmm. And I actually got a lot of the ideas for for some of you know the coolest studies that we did from coaches because they were doing certain things with either lactate or we were doing um, occlusion. So like cutting off blood flow to limbs, and then that sparks the creation of molecules that then, you know, improve function. It, it, lots of really, really cool studies. Um, but yeah, I just felt like my job was often just to help coaches and athletes gain confidence in their program by explaining to them in a way that they understood what they were doing and why it was working. Once I had done that for six months, then they started asking me questions. And then I yep. knew as soon as I heard that question, I'm like, okay, cool. I've won. I can work with this, this athlete tandem. But often I would just sit there and like observe and sort of just, you know, explain stuff uh, before I ever offered any sort of advice. Mm. Anyway, that's my thought. Um, question about specificity. You mentioned that you're, that you, that you work a lot on specificity and like sort of as an observer, I would say that in seeing what you're up to, that your approach to coaching swimming is quite different than what I have seen in the past, especially the amount of quality, you know, race pace work or faster that you do. Swimming tended to be a very high volume training sport. And uh, yeah, I just see that specificity coming through all the time. I think that applies to everybody in, in all disciplines. So could you expand upon that a little bit? Because that's pretty cool and interesting. Yeah, again, I think it came from if you were to go back, you know, in a Freudian type situation and make me lie down on some sofa, it probably comes from those early years again when we, we had that very small facility and very little pool time. And, you know, you can swim aerobically for 45 minutes, but that probably isn't going to help you an awful lot in the sport of swimming. Or you could do some quality for 45 minutes and you you got the results a lot quicker. So um that's probably where it came from, I guess, working with a lot of other sports as well, you know, and track and field, track cycling, um, power type sports like that. I get that swimming on the whole isn't quite that way, but it's it's getting there depending on, you know, there's no one that's not fast anymore. And I, and I mean that through 
all the distances, whether you're an open water swimmer, you need to be fast on the back end of a swim. If you're clearly a sprint swimmer or a sprint athlete, you need to be, you know, these guys now are big, strong, powerful people, the, the women as well. So, um, so that quality for me was more, you know, to coin the phrase time at task, it was, it was better body position. It was more specific on the stroke of what they were doing. Um, as opposed to just swimming aerobically, where if you were to look at it or film it, I mean, I've spent the last 25 years, all I've done is watch people swim up and down a swimming pool. It only takes me three seconds to look at someone and say that that's not really very good for you, what you're doing right now. <laughs> yeah, so, totally. um, so trying to be more specific again, getting more strokes or getting more, um, you know, even if it's a closed skill, like a start or a turn, they have very little to do with swimming. You could get the world's best triple jumper, give them to a, to someone, you know, to, to teach them how to dive. And they'd probably be the fastest person in the world through the first 10, 15 meters, because they're just that sort of athlete. Mm-hmm. So specific time spent on closed skills, the more strokes you can do, or the more time you can spend in training, um, repeating, a movement, a pattern, a power that you're actually going to need when you get to to race quickly. For me, it's not a bad thing. You know, that's not to say we don't swim. I mean, we swim for two hours every workout. But if if someone was to come to me and say, look, for a swim, it might be different if you're swimming a 25K or a 10K open water type event. But if someone's going to come to me and say that you need more than four hours of aerobic or, you know, of activity in a day to be fit enough to do an event that lasts two minutes or less. They, I mean, I, I, I don't think we need to do that much, right? But we do. So, yeah. um, you know, when I think back to a lot of stuff we did for those of the more swimming, more of a swimming background, there was a, in 2009, a lot of swimsuits came out with a poly, what was it? Poly, I want to say polyurethane, whatever the, the magic suits were, they were thick neoprene type suits. They were like a wetsuit effectively that triathletes or, or open water swimmers would use. And they adapted them slightly for pool swimming and all the world records got broken. And an athletes I coached broke world records during that time too. And then the interesting thing for me was that afterwards, um, I actually decided that, well, those suits helped people's buoyancy. They kept them up in the water. Their strokes, particularly a, a more muscled male sprinter, it, it helped them if they, um, if to give them a better body position and things like that. So we'd actually use them not so much for speed swimming because those athletes could get to sprint speed by themselves, but we'd actually wear those suits for aerobic workouts. And my philosophy for that, well, now they were a pain in the ass to get on. These suits sometimes took up to an hour, sometimes 75 minutes to put on. I had one girl at World Champs in 2009. Was it a boy? I think it was Lizzie Simmons. From warm-up to racing, she actually did maximal exertions of putting on the world's tightest swimsuits four times because they just kept ripping. Um, but that by doing that, let's say a 2K aerobic set in, in those floaty-type suits gave an opportunity for a heavily muscled male sprint athlete as an example, to swim with better technique, with better body position, higher in the water for a duration way longer than what they would have already, you know, ordinarily been able to do. So, again, manipulating equipment and the environment to try to get you to a goal of, well, can you swim more specifically for longer? You know, whether that's for our kids then now with nowadays with fins or fins and finger paddles or a snorkel on so that you're not doing every other stroke with poor technique because you're just trying to breathe. Um, things like that. I don't so that's know. almost like 
instead of putting resistance on someone to make it harder, you're giving them the suit to actually make it easier so they can go faster, more easily, more often. Does that make sense? Yep. That applies in so many aspects of our lives. I've, you know, I've, I listen a lot to um, Tim Ferriss's podcast. And one of the things that I've heard him say a lot is like, what would this look like if it was easy? I found that so helpful in like so many different aspects of my life. So it's funny that that comes up in this environment as well. Yeah. And particularly if you're trying to perfect something, if you're trying to master something, the more variables you have in it, and it's the same whether it's in business or whether it's in sport, whether it's in your personal life, the more the more variables you're trying to juggle at one time, the less likely your chance of success to actually improve the thing that you're trying to work on. Um, swimming, for example, you know, I, I see kids in learn to swim programs or, or swim teachers trying to teach kids to swim freestyle straight away. And well, freestyle is the stroke that's easiest to do. Well, actually, it's 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 not. It's you have to move the head from a position that's in the water to out of the water, which throws off your hips, which usually then brings someone arm across, for example. And so just the, the mechanics of breathing in swimming with your face from in the water as a kid trying to learn. You're making things harder for yourself. You know, if a kid was trying to learn, I'd teach them to float on their back and then swim backstroke because they never have to move their head. They can breathe as much as they want. Well, you, you boil that down to say something with our athletes, if we're working a technique set or whatever it is, having the fins on, having a snorkel on. And if they, let's say they're working some, some catch at the front of the stroke to be swimming geeky about it. Well, then having the fins on means that they don't have to worry too much about the leg kick. They've got the momentum to help them move through the water. By putting a snorkel on, they don't have to worry about the mechanics of breathing, which in itself changes everything around the rotation of the body and the stroke. Uh, and then you put something on like a finger paddles or a Hungarian fat paddle, or you can play with the variables then at the front of the stroke because you've taken away things that they'd otherwise have to think about and let them zero on, on zero, zero in on one thing. Um, so I think your point about sometimes making things easier, you know, you can make things harder with resistance at any point too. But I'm just saying that a lot of the time, if you're trying to work a technique or a skill or a, um, something which is going to require your cognitive attention, more variables is usually a, a worse environment to do that in. Yeah, really. So you're just constantly simplifying. And of course, you might add resistance or you might facilitate depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But simplification and focus seem to be pretty, pretty key. What's it like trying to prepare athletes in a COVID era when <laughs> everything's kind of up in the air? Maybe you're seeing them in training. Maybe you're not. Maybe they're training at home. Maybe they're at the actual pool. You're going to a games. The trials have been moved. Like there's so much uncertainty right now. That's true for everyone in every aspect of everybody's lives right now, which is kind of why I'm asking the question. So how do you, how are you preparing your athletes? Like what are some of the things that are working for you and your athletes right now leading into the one year delayed Tokyo Olympics? I mean, it is tough, and it's. I think it's tougher here in Canada than it is in in most other places in the world. You know, if you're in Australia right now, you've probably haven't been out of the water at all. You're able to compete. Okay, you can't travel internationally, but geez, you've got the beach, you've got the sunshine, you've, you're able to to race against the other best swimmers in the world because they're in Australia. You're okay. If you're in Europe right now, there's a big meet on in Marseille. There's kids from the Netherlands, from Greece, from Denmark, from where. They're able to travel around. If it's for their sport, they can travel to a train camp, to a competition, return to the UK and not have to, to do a quarantine. 
Kids here in Canada have had to, one, I think Toronto is the most locked down city in the world in terms of how long things have been shut. Um, and, and, and that's no exaggeration. That Then we've obviously, the elite athletes were out twice as long maybe as, as the next closest person around the world. Um, we, we, we stopped training before most and we started back way after most. And, you know, there's there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids that still aren't allowed to be back doing whatever sport it is they want to do. I think it's extremely rough on, on Canadians right now. And we don't seem to have handled the pandemic particularly better than anybody else. We've just shut ourselves away from the rest of the world. So the biggest challenge for us without this bleeding, you know, don't want to sound like we're, we're moaning about it, is... That's the situation we find ourselves in and, and we deal with it. The athletes are in great shape, but I tell you where, where we're going to be challenged is the staleness. You know, they've, they've mm. been in the same pool now for over a year without seeing anybody else to race, without traveling to even a different environment in which to train or operate, or, you know, they can't go for a run. Well, I'm doing this route today and I'm doing this route tomorrow. This is the same door, the same swimming pool, the same black line every day for a year. And, 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 and the thing that I used to use, and we'll use again when we get a chance to keep things fresh for elite athletes, particularly in a sport like swimming, which inherently is pretty mundane, right? It's two hours in the morning. It's two hours at night. Yes, we have weights. Yes, we have circuits. Yes, we used to be able to do rock climbing and, 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 and cross training activities, which do take up a big part of how I schedule a year. But the predominance is in the swimming pool. And it's been the same swimming pool. They haven't been able to race. They haven't been able to travel. We would usually, I would say, I never in Toronto for more than, maybe four weeks, but I'd be tempted to say three weeks from November through till July, never more than three weeks straight. We'd have a camp somewhere warm weather, particularly through the the harsh Canadian winter. You know, that there's a reason that trees stop growing when Canada gets into the months of November, December, January, February, March, because it's freaking cold and no one wants to go outside. There's a reason why bears hibernate. So you're trying to talk about elite athletes growing, developing, Young young kids growing, developing those those changes of stimulus, the, the the warm weather camps, the racing people or international competition who are better than you. So it changes your mindset of what's possible, what am I capable of, what do I need to do. We haven't had any of that, and I think that's what's going to challenge us the most: that staleness, that um, lack of growth. I mean, we're, we're trying it. We're trying to do it the best we can. We'll organize time trial events and bits and pieces like that. But it's not the same. And that's going to be the problem when it comes to our trials, for sure. Our trials. Now, it's the best scenario. Swimming Canada put a lot of thought into it. It's the best scenario they can do. But a heat declared winner type event after not having raced for 15 months, that's going to be tough for a lot of kids. You are not going to see performances that people are capable of doing. You'll see what they're capable of doing on that day, on that one occasion, but they don't get a second chance to do it. And my fear is that when we get to the Olympics, if that staleness continues, if there hasn't been a chance to give everybody a change of stimulus prior to going into Tokyo, the rest of the world has. China hasn't changed what they're doing. Japan hasn't changed what they're doing. Well, maybe they've adapted, but they've been racing high quality meets against each other. Same in Europe, same in Australia. Same in the US, the women's NC2A championships is going on right now with eight people in a race, with heats and finals, with, and we are not in a position to do so. So 
I get it. The greater good of the of the country and people, you know, public health and everything else. I understand all of that, but that is not going to help anybody by the time we walk out on a poolside to race the west of the world. If it was just us competing against other Canadians, I'd be like, hey, let's go. No problem. But that's not what we get judged on. And so that will be a challenge. Um, no excuses. It's, it's just the situation we have. And so we have to make it work for us. I'm very proud of, of the physical shape the kids are in. Um, it's probably tough mentally for them on, on occasions, as it is for everybody. Um, but we're going to have to try to find a way to get the job done. And it certainly won't be the same way it's been able to, to be for the last, you know, however many years. Yeah, interesting. It's kind of um, it is fascinating how the how you do even if it's the same black it's a it's a black line on the bottom of the pool. But when you change locations, it brings that freshness back. When you put yourself in a position where you can see other people doing the same thing as you, but at a higher level, it opens up your thinking to new possibilities about what you're capable of and what what other people. Um, are capable of right like the roger bannister breaking the four minute mile as soon as he did that then all sorts of people were doing it and so it's that it's that freshness matters that change of scenery matters that perspective change matters and that's definitely something that um you know i, I think a lot of people are probably craving that but we weren't quite sure maybe why other than just like i've been stuck here but the fact that you can actually deliberately elevate your performances because of that changing environment is actually super interesting to me. Yeah. When you get to the Olympics itself and you're in that pressure cooker, you've got the media, you've got the, you know, all of the pressure of the years that you've dedicated towards that moment. And someone is actually able to go in and improve their performances, break that world record versus those that go to the Olympics and, either do the same or, or maybe, you know, maybe don't reach their lifetime best at the actual games themselves. What are some success factors that you have noticed from people who have gone to the Olympics and, and had those transcendent performances? Is there any trends that you see there or insights that you have that enable people to perform under pressure? Yeah. And I think a part of it was, you know, if you just looked at the question and the way that you phrased the question, I think that from the outside, people look at the Olympics, and unfortunately, that that permeates into the athletes themselves. They look at the Olympics, and it's like this big production. It's billions of dollars. It's you know billions of people around the world are watching. But actually, when you're there, you're in a village, you're in a food hall, you're on a bus, or you're at the venue. That's it. You know, there might be the odd media interview to do here and there, and. I think where possible, I would try to protect people and have them not do anything outside of the bubble. But if you can have people understand that they're there just for core, they're there for core business. And once the swimming's done, they can have a great time. And unfortunately, this Olympics not. People will be booted out within 24 hours. But um, ordinarily, if you can just focus on, well, look, it's a you know it's a swimming race. A, 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 an ex-athlete they used to work with just used to describe it as two lengths of the baths. Very English expression. Okay. Hey, two lengths of the baths. It's the same here as it's the same here. It's the same there. It's the same wherever you are in the world. And I think if you can have that mentality, then it helps you out. You know, Penny, for example, yes, she was young at the last Olympics, but she was also naive. She didn't know what that pressure was. She didn't know that it was anything. But she was on the bus. She was in the dining hall. She was sleeping or she was at the swimming pool. 
that's it. And it's only when you come out of that bubble are you like, whoa, what, you know, what's been going on here? What's happened? So I think if you can protect it as much as possible and just have people understand they're there to just do what they've practiced to do, um, then they'll usually be set up for success more often than not. I think that there's a, a team dynamic aspect to it as well. And again, a lot of teams I've been on and even the current one, they try to get the team as big as they can. Um, it means more accreditations. I guess it means more funding from the government of Canada, et cetera, et cetera, at some point. But you've got to understand that if you're trying to to organize a culture, if you're trying to enact a change, if you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before or certainly in your country hasn't been done before, then it's very difficult to do if you you know think of like a triangle and if your top performers are this top part of the triangle and then the majority of the team are down here. Well, if the majority of the team are going to an Olympics knowing that they don't have a chance to make a final, they don't have a chance to win a medal, they don't have a chance to win, that's a tough sell, you know, and you've probably seen in your time working with sports, you'll have people who just making the Olympics was their goal. And once they go there, the Olympics itself from a performance perspective is probably terrible because they're, they're I don't say out of their depth because they're clearly an elite performer. They're, not, they're an Olympian. But I would prefer to have a smaller team who are capable of doing something special so that they understand, well, this is our norm. This is what's expected. This is how we bounce off each other as opposed to we've got a team of 40 and 36 of them no, they have no chance of winning medals or, or being involved in shooting for finals or whatever whatever the, the goal of that team may be. Uh, to answer your question, I would say try to keep people, bad word at the moment, but in a bubble, focused on their event that they know they've trained to do and try to have as, as large a contingent as possible with people who have the same goals of achieving at the Olympics as opposed to we just made the Olympics. If I think back to 2016 for Canada with the swim team, certainly from the perspective of our group, we had all the women whose goals were to win a medal in the women's relays, four by 100 freestyle relay, for example. And Penny was part of that. So going into the meet, going through the last couple of weeks, going through the first day, that is the overriding culture that, that athletes like that were in, that we're here to do a job to win a medal. And first day, women's relay wins a medal. And then the rest is history. You know, people sort of gravitated towards that that feeling or that um, that performance outlook. And I think that's very, very important, whether it's in business, whether it's in you know any any aspect of life. It was interesting watching that team go from uh, how it very rapidly changed into the expectation of every single person on that team was to go home with the medal. Like that, mm-hmm. it's sort of like I haven't won my medal yet. What's up? And they just it was about doing something special. And uh, you mentioned the word culture and pulling people together to do something special. I think that's super fascinating as well. And also that, you know, there was shared goals and visions, getting everyone on the same page to do something that's sort of that peak experience that that people are capable of. That, those are all like really interesting thoughts, I think. Wondering, like, can you expand on that at all? Just because that culture piece matters. And so creating that environment where people feel like the expectation is that we do something often drags even more people up to that that human potential. Am I saying that right? I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right. But Yeah, you are. I mean, I think, like I said, I think it's the same in, in, in any aspect. If you, you know, I know you like to go for your bike rides with the, 
what's your what's your cycling gang called? <laughs> the fellas. The boys the all fellas, go out. The fellas, right? So if you're going with the fellas, let's just say that a group of ex Tour de France riders moved to the beaches and said, "Boys, let, I want to join the fellas just for a bit." You might lose one or two of your core gang of fellas because they're just like, "This is too hard for me," you know, like this the the, the daily grind of being good at something or great at something is just a bit too much so i'll see you later i'm gonna go you know, i'm gonna get one of the city bikes and i'm just gonna tinkle around like i do um but they'll be maybe the if they're motivated to the, the rest of you will be and i'm putting you in the group that will be motivated to that they would be well hold on here we go let's raise our level and you'll look back in six months and you'll be a vastly improved cyclist actually without it might be hard for a month or two at the start, but actually without a huge concerted effort, just because of that culture and environment that you're around, where, again, I, I spoke before about I set high expectations. Um, I do expect good standards of whether it be speed, behavior, strength, focus, um, and all of those things, just when you're in that environment, become the norm. And it's not for everybody. High performance sport, high performance coaching. People think it, you know, that that's an, an aspiration to get to. I think I did a talk once for, I can't even remember who it was for, but I think the title of the talk was If your goal as a coach is to coach an Olympic gold medalist, or if your dream, I think it was dream, if your dream is to coach an Olympic gold medalist, find a better dream. Because once that comes and goes, what's the next? You know, oh, geez, I've got to do it again. I, I've got to get more kids medals or I've got to do this. It, does, it never ends. And plus people can be a pain in the ass. So you need to have a goal that's more fulfilling for you. But that culture of achievement, high performance achievement, high performance sport, high performance business, it isn't for everybody. But when you create a culture and people can buy into it, it's going to help those that are able to be part of it or want to be part of it. You will lose some along the way. It's not going to be for everybody. And that's OK. Plenty of things to do with your life. But in from my perspective, if you want to be great at swimming, then, hey, let's go. Jump on the back of my train. Choo choo. I'm the driver. Let's go. And um, and if you don't, if you want to do something else or if you want to do it in a different way, that's totally fine. Good luck. Go do it. But this is the way that this culture will move. I think that's very, very important. I think people all too often compromise on that. They um, dilute what it is they're about. But you have to believe in the way that you do it. You have to sell that vision. You have to sell that dream. You have to sell that passion. And, um, and usually good things come from that. All right. Final question. Um, cause you mentioned something and I, I think it's really interesting and I am sensitive to your time. You got to get back to practice, but you talked about actually the moment I don't have to, oh, oh yeah, you don't get, cause you're in quarantine. Perfect. We'll keep talking for hours. Outstanding. Um, you talked about, you know, if your goal is, sorry, if your dream is to, and funny, you, you use the term dream. Cause I've talked a lot about the difference between dreams and goals, dreams being way more powerful is your dream is to coach an Olympic gold medalist, find a new dream. And that really speaks to something that's emerged on this podcast and certainly in my thinking probably um, over the last three years. And that is a shift from focus on outcomes to a shift to process. Mm -hmm. And with process being far more powerful than outcomes, which I think is kind of this whole culture issue. We're going here. This is how we do things. This is the way we're thinking if you want to come on this journey, we're going this way and you jump on the train because it's leaving the station. 
And if this isn't for you, that's totally fine. But the process that we are following is X. Um, I'm curious if that reson if, if that's an accurate sort of um, interpretation of of what you were saying there. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that we are all at the end of the day, rightly or wrongly, and, and I actually think wrongly, but there's not too many other ways to do it. Judged on the end result, not on the performance. And, you know, people think you're a great coach if your athletes win medals. People think you're a great leader in business if the company turns over a huge profit, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, a lot of the time, that's not in your control. You know, if I if I was to think about this next six months, a big a big challenge for us to win medals in our women's relays at the Olympic level is to beat China. Well, China hasn't stopped training. But the reality is none of that is going to matter when it comes to the final in Tokyo. We are going to have to try to beat a country like China or Australia or America or the Netherlands or Sweden, um, who maybe haven't had their stuff disrupted quite to the same level as Canadians have. And we can't control that outcome. I can't control it if three other teams all break the world record by 10 seconds and we break the world record by nine seconds and we finish fourth. Well, are we a failure because we came fourth? Yes and no, I guess. But but the outcome is very difficult. And I think in a sport like swimming, any sport like that, actually, um, and this is why I, I honestly think in the world of business, if I was running a business, I would employ sports people nine times out of 10 because it's the only real profession in the world where at least, and I'm sure there's more, but where let's say it's a swimming race and you dive in and you put your heart and soul, you know, you've trained for a year for one minute of activity. And at the end of that one minute of activity, you touch a wall and you stop and you look up at a scoreboard. And if it's an Olympic Games, there is billions of people around the world who see that result probably before you do, certainly at the same time as you do. And they will make an instant judgment on you, your self-worth, your um, you're everything, you know? Ah, oh, well, geez, I see. Always knew they weren't as good as I thought. Well, hold on. Give me another profession in business where at the end of the day you have to, I mean, maybe the stock market, I don't know enough about it and I'm definitely terrible at it, but who, um, who get judged in an instant in front of everybody um, after putting their heart and soul into something. There's very, there's very few professions that do that. And so, I have a lot of time for sports people. I do get that we are judged on the performances at the end of the day, but focusing on the performance or the outcome, I guess I should say the outcome rather than performance. The performances can be intrinsic, but the outcome, focusing more on the outcome, makes no sense whatsoever. It's not going to help you on a daily basis. You could use it as motivation, maybe. Uh, it's maybe a negative motivation, but focusing on what you do each day, just being better each day. Am I better today at this than I was yesterday? If I'm not, then why not? Learn from it and move on. Um, I think is extremely important. We never really talk. Well, we don't. We don't talk about medals. You don't talk about medals? Sorry, you cut out and it was too important. I can't let that one go. You don't have daily conversations about medals? No. No. Wow. I mean, we, we, we all know that that's the... You know, that's what we like to see at the end of the journey, but we can't control it. We can only control what we're doing that day, whether we're better mm -hmm. at what we're trying to do. And so I think before I remember getting interviewed by the guy that does the hockey stuff for, for Canada. I can't remember his name. Ron McLean. No. Uh, 
he did the commentating uh, for the swimming with Byron, but he's usually one of the pundits on the hockey sort of thing. Anyway, can't remember his name. And he asked about medals. I remember I was on the poolside in the warm-up pool. And as the head coach of the team, it's me that had to address the media a lot of the time. And I just said, well, look, we're not, I'm not going to tell you how many medals I think we can win. I don't see any point in us putting additional pressure on ourselves than what we already feel intrinsically. So we'll, we'll, same thing when we go to Tokyo, we'll go to do the best that we can. We will go to put in performances that put us in contention to win or to win medals. Um, but again, focusing on that end result doesn't actually help you in, in, in the process leading up to that point. So I think people's energies are better used focusing on themselves, on their daily improvements than it is what's going to happen at the end of the day. And I know yeah. that can sound like a soft answer, and, and but it's the answer that makes sense. You know, it's like when we spoke at the start of this podcast about communication and losing it and getting angry and this and that. And well, again, who are you doing that for? If you're getting angry, you're really doing it for yourself. If we're, if we're talking about medals, who are we doing it for? We're doing it for people outside of the people that are actually going to make a difference. So I hope that makes sense. Um, yeah, it does. And it's absolutely consistent across almost every single person that's been on this show. It's, I can't tell you the number of people that have, have all disciplines, music, drama, sports, business, like whatever, science, whatever it happens to be, adventuring. It's always process, right? Like Ray Zahab, who runs across deserts. It's not about, I mean, he, he has the project that he's working on. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, am I doing my daily training? Am I doing my supplementation? Am I doing my physical maintenance on a literally daily basis? Then after eight months of that, he then goes and tries to do his ex expeditions that he does. So, I mean, it's absolutely consistent. That mindset is absolutely consistent across almost every single person that's been on this show. Right. All right, buddy, you've got two minutes left. So any messages you want to send to everyone or uh, like just a final closing thought, uh, like any, just any sort of last, last, things that are on your mind uh, as we sort of are in this very strange uh, delayed uh, Olympic year? Final thoughts? Um, nothing other than the world will keep spinning and we'll keep moving forward. And, you know, if you can't achieve what it is you want to achieve right now because of reasons that are outside of your control, understand that. Try not to get frustrated. It's understandable that people do. You know, I've got frustrated just today when I found out how many more days I have to be stuck in here, even though I'm not even sick. And, um, but you know what, at some point I'll be allowed outside in the sunshine. At some point I'll be able to help people get better. I, I just got to focus on other things for now. So whether that's Netflix, whether it's doing my push-ups in the morning or, or whatever it may be, um, control what you can control. Try to have a good time, do it with a smile on your face and understand not much in life is worth worrying about. Love it. Ben, thanks for taking the time, buddy. Appreciate it. Very welcome. Jean-Francois, thank you for joining me. It's great to see you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. So um, it's been an interesting year. You've got a lot of athletes getting ready for maybe the Olympics, maybe in Tokyo, maybe with the fans, maybe not. Like, what's this? How has this year been for you? How are your athletes doing? Like, how are, how are you coping with this crazy situation? Well, it's been challenging for everyone. You know, Olympic athletes, just like people in the workplace, um, you know, our lives have completely changed, Greg. And I think one thing that um, is quite clear is how much we rely on knowing what's coming up in the future. And when we don't have that, 
people are people are lost and uh, it's been the most difficult things for most people especially when you talk about motivation and, and staying focused like you know we rely a lot on knowing what's coming up in two weeks and two months and two years um and it's not until we don't have it anymore that we realize how much we rely on it and that's what the pandemic has done and so i challenge people to redefine their goals like you know to see to see long-term future not as seven months but maybe more seven days Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we don't know what's going to happen in a few months. Um, and I, you know, one of the quotes that I've been using a lot in the last few months is the best way to manage uncertainties is by focusing on the certainties, you know, like, uh, and there's a lot of stuff that is certain in our lives, like, you know, what's going on today and tomorrow and maybe the next week and, you know, taking care of ourselves, you know, the, um, our agendas that are coming up in the next few days, like those are things we do control. And, you know, we have brains that like to, to project uh, long-term forward and, you know, just always bring it back and bring it back and bring it back. So I would say that generally speaking, the athletes that I've been working with are doing quite well, even though it's, I mean, it's not fun. They, they like to compete, right. And they're not, they haven't been competing much in the last 14 months, but um, they've been really dialed in really disciplined. I think what has really saved them is they put their focus on the certainties, what they really control. And that's now. So, yeah, I love that. Just the idea of control, what you can control, and don't allow your attention or energies to get directed towards things that you cannot control. That's a that's an incredible idea. And and don't be so hard on yourself. Like that's what I tell athletes. Whenever you catch yourself having thoughts about what's coming up in five months, just don't don't criticize yourself. Just bring it back. Like okay, well, what can I do in the next few days that's going to help whatever I'm going to do in five months? And um, yeah, it's been a lifesaver. And in the end, you know this type of focus is important in non-COVID times as well. It's just that now we're more exposed to not knowing what's coming up. And even if it is predictable, like think about it. You can think all you want about what's going to happen in five months. But when you get there, how oftentimes is it exactly what you predicted? Never, right? Never. So never. And so, um, you know, even in terms of like having big goals and, you know, like, no, I have a really successful business going on. And a lot of people ask me, like, what's your secret about like long-term planning? And my secret is I don't really have any long-term planning. You know, I just focus on doing great work on a regular basis and maintaining relationships and and making sure that I'm having fun in what I'm doing. And things just kind of they just it's just natural. It's organic. It just they just come up, right? So um, so a lot of these great athletes have a similar focus. And 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 some of them that have started started doing some competitions recently. I've actually competed quite well, even though the, you know, their, their programs were different and they didn't have access to the facilities like they typically do. Um, but we adapt, we're made to adapt as human beings. So totally. I mean, that's our, you well, probably what humans are better at than any other organism on the planet really is just our ability to adapt. Right. And I watched with amazement as the ISL, the international sports uh, swimming league, uh, the sort of pro swim league came back online this year and people that hadn't competed in a long time like Caleb Dressel was getting out there and breaking world record after world record after world it was unbelievable to watch these athletes that had taken a year off still be able to perform at incredibly high levels so I really hope that that's something that we can see in Tokyo this summer probably via television because there won't be any foreign foreigners in the stands but may not even be any locals in the stands but yeah that's um that's a really interesting thing that they love to compete haven't been able to 
but the discipline and the focus on the present moments enable them to keep going and keep discipline and stay on the training. That's super fascinating. And interestingly enough, a lot of these athletes were forced to recover more and, you know, to, you know, to, to not train as much. And a lot of these athletes that are typically, you know, traveling the world, well, they've been sleeping in the same bed for the last 14 months and not having to go through jet lag and stuff. And, and ironically enough, less injuries, you know, better moods for a lot of them. And uh, like I said, some of these athletes are coming back now and performing better. So it's really interesting because now we're questioning like, you know, how much training do they really need to get ready for important events? And, you know, as you know, working in, in elite sport yourself, it's always this juggling about like what's overtraining versus being under recovered. Cause you know, athletes are able to train a lot, but this recovery piece is the secret weapon to a lot of these athletes. And it's not until they're forced to stop or relax that they understand how recovery is important. So it's been one great lesson from, from COVID is most of these athletes have not trained as much as they used to and they're in better shape. So isn't that fascinating that uh, once they've actually been forced to sleep, not travel, not be jet lagged, get the recovery and regeneration physically because we're not traveling so much that the mind and the body have adapted, healed. My daughter's grown so much because she's been sleeping so, <laughs> I like just sleeping constantly. And especially in the first three months of the pandemic, my kids slept the entire time. Uh, it was unbelievable to just see how fatigued they were and they're young. Right. And so I can't, I can, and I can imagine, and I remember just how exhausted we were as athletes and as even as a staff around the, the athletes. So this forced recovery, I, I understand it completely as a physiologist, but what does that look like for you as a mental skills coach? Like I understand, yes, we build more red blood cells. We repair muscle yeah. tissue, but from a, from a mental skills perspective, what is this amazing recovery look like from from your from your world yeah well there's a lot of angles i could take this but the first thing that comes to mind is some of these athletes are telling me that they don't feel rushed for something coming up in this and, and this is very like it's not tangible it's very abstract but this concept of being constantly rushed it's it's grueling and it really eats up inside and uh it's difficult to measure um, you know, it's very easy to measure like big traumatic stresses and, you know, like, you know, like major things that have happened throughout the year, but like having to, you know, run from one meeting to the other and having to take care of, you know, certain appointments or doing this and doing that. I mean, people, just people in the workplace right now are, are feeling it. Like the biggest problem, Greg, right now in the workplace is being on meetings all day. You know, from eight until five, it's back to back to back to back meetings. And, you know, a lot of these companies, because I, I do a lot of work in, in, in the workplace, you know, teaching mental skills to, um, to, to corporate leaders and to, um, you know, just, just anyone in the workplace to be a little bit more efficient. And um, I've been telling these companies, like, stop having these meetings back to back. And if you're going to have meetings, instead of making them an hour long, Make them 40, 45 minutes and, and offer transition times from meeting to meeting. Because if, if you had meetings in your, in your building, uh, you would never allow your, you know, you would never ask your, your, uh, your employees to go from one meeting, in, you know, from nine to 10 and then have to run across the building 
to a next meeting starting at 10. Like there would, there would be some time to, to go from one meeting to the other. But now it's a click on the screen, you know, like end meeting and then start the next one. Yeah. And so, and so our brains and our bodies, they're not made to go on and on and on and on without having moments to recover. And, you know, to think that you can be just as good at four in the afternoon that you were at eight in the morning without pacing yourself, without having it planned, um, it's absolute, it's ludicrous. Like it, it makes absolutely no sense. And so a lot of these top athletes are kind of living the same thing in their own world. Like they have so much flexibility now in organizing their time because they're at home, you know, it's, it's easier. And so, um, yeah, so that's one thing, not being rushed as much. And I just, even in terms of like the work that I've actually done with these, with these athletes in the last 14 months, I don't remember, Greg, the last time I'd had so many deep conversation and meaningful conversations with the athletes because we're not rushed to get ready for a competition. We have time to get into these mental skills and talk about like self-confidence for 10 hours if we need to. Um, right. it's, it's, it's so much fun because there's a lot of these athletes I've been working with for like six, seven, eight, ten years. And, and we were just like, we're in the grind, you know, just, it's the same thing year after year. It's the same routine. It's the same schedule. And for the first time in history, there's been a big pause on planet earth. And, and now we have time to talk about fundamental things that, um, I'm convinced that it's going to be an investment, not only for the Olympics, but for the rest of their career. I couldn't agree more. Like Judith and I, my wife and I have been having like two to three hour chats every night, just about stuff. And then like, what do we want? Because <laughs> everything's been thrown out. So it's like, what do you want to do? Where do you want to live? Where do you want to be next year? Our kids are in digital school. We can go wherever we want. Like we can do with the, the level of freedom. And of course, I'm super grateful. And I acknowledge the privilege of having the job that I have that allows me to work wherever I am um, like, it's just been, uh, it's just been amazing to be able to pause, breathe, reconsider similarly with all my corporate clients. We've had those conversations. What is it that we're doing? Why are we doing it? And, and discover that, that meaning the purpose, like, and craft the vision of a better future because we're not in the grind. We have time. I'm not racing around to the next airport uh, we can have these conversations and not be rushed and actually put some thinking into pacing out our lives and planning our lives. So it's a unique opportunity that we have right now. Well, and I think, you know, the pandemic has forced us to, um, to really prioritize taking care of ourselves, even though this is, this should always be a priority. This should always be important, but uh, we're fragile like we really are. And, and we see it now, like, you know, we're with people, you know, you, you flip their life around being at home, some lost their jobs. Some, I mean, I'm, I've been fortunate. Nobody in my entourage has been really affected by COVID, but there's a ton of people that lost people in their lives, like from, from this. Right. So, um, but in the end we need to take care of ourselves and, you know, people are not healthy. It's, it's, it's a huge problem in our society. And I, I've got to say, that, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be Canadian. I, I think the way Canada managed the pandemic until now, even though we can always go back and say they should have done this, should have done that, you know, you look across the world and what's going on, you know, we're doing pretty well, okay? And, I, and I'm, proud to, I'm proud to be Canadian. But the one thing I will say, though, you know, how many times have we been told to wash our hands, 
and wear a mask and social distance. And we know this, like we, we know that's what we need to do. But arguably the most important thing we need to do is to have a strong immune system to combat this virus. If you look at people who are vulnerable, it's people that have a weak immune system. Yeah. And it's a, it's a fabulous opportunity to take care of the biggest problem we have, obesity, being unhealthy, not sleeping enough, not eating properly. And I mean, I'm talking to physiologists, I don't need to convince you, uh, but it's an amazing opportunity that I find the government is like not taking advantage of. And there's no greater time to realize how important it is to be healthy. <laughs> and we're not talking about this enough, I think. I couldn't agree with you more. My blood is boiling as you're, as you're speaking. Actually, I haven't said a lot of this stuff out loud because I've sort of been holding my, my tongue, but I'm not going to anymore. And yes, we need to get vaccinated. Actually, I've got my first dose. So I'm on that. On that oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, right. I'm, I'm, I've got part one done. I'm in. And yes, you should wash your hands because it you pick up viruses when you touch things. And yes, you should wear a mask because when you cough or sneeze, you're, you project viruses and droplets up to 30 feet away from you. So wear a mask. That is like just the basics of not infecting others and protecting yourself so that you don't infect other people who are more vulnerable than you. But in addition to that, and as you said, it has not been discussed, the effect of vitamin D and getting out in the sun, exercising outdoors, which we know improves your immune system and keeps you healthy. Exercise, which if you exercise consistently reduces your risk for viral respiratory tract infections by up to 75%. And put that in the context of how effective vaccines are, from, which is essentially from 65% to 95%. It's right in that same level of protection. And then we're not even getting into sleep, which improves the immune system, and nutrition, which also improves the immune system. We even had professionals, health professionals at the start of the pandemic say there's no association between your nutrition and your immune system, which absolutely boggled my mind. That came out from a number of dietitians, which blew my mind. But let's not go there and get all frustrated about that. <laughs> we know that exercise is good. We know nutrition is good. We know that sleep is good. I'm curious from your perspective on the mental skill side, how is stress? How does stress affect the immune system? How does this constant feeling of being rushed or anxious affect the immune system? How do our mental skills keep us healthy? Because that's also something that is a variable that we can all control. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, the word stress to start with is such a general term. You know, it, people use this, this word all the time. I'm so stressed out. But in the end, it absolutely means anything. It doesn't mean anything. You know, the word stress is, it's, 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 a, it's a family of things that could stress you out, right? We have positive stress. We have negative stress, which a lot of people know this. This stress is the negative one and you stress is the positive one. Um, but are you living? Are you living anxiety? Are you living frustration? Are you living uncertainties? Uh, uh, and it's important to label these things because, in the end, um, when you talk about fear, for instance, well, fear is 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 not a thing. Fear is is simply a story we make up in our minds about something that could potentially happen. But this is extremely important for people to understand because that means that you're making something up in your mind that seems real because you believe it, you construct it in your mind. Um, but think about it. Most things that we're scared about when we finally go through them, our reactions are, well, I wasn't so bad. 
Well, that means that whatever you imagined before and what it was in reality, there's a huge contrast. Um, and then I could, I could go on and on and on talking about this, but we really got to be careful in, in the words we choose when we speak to ourselves. Um, you know, and, and I'm very fortunate to, you know, to work with, with clients that are, you know, some of the best in the world and, you know, to become a world champion, to become an Olympic champion, when we talk about small details, I mean, it's no joke, you know, sometimes it's just sometimes just one word that an athlete can tell himself just before they go down the skiing hill or before they take the pool or that could determine between a first place and a fourth place. It really is like that. So, you know, I, I take Mikael Kingsbury, for instance, uh, our famous mogul skier. You know, you talk about performing on demand. You know, it's one performance that lasts more or less 23 seconds every four years. Like, you know, for people listening to us right now, if I told you, you have one chance every four years, you've got 25 seconds to be the best version of yourself. And if you screw up, you have to wait four years to redeem yourself. Like, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, that's that when you talk about performing on the man, that's performing on the man. So, so Mick and I worked for months and months and months prepping for that one moment when he was going to be on top of that hill before his final run. What are you going to tell yourself? Because when you're going to be there, your brain will think. Your, your brain is made to think. You can't stop a brain from thinking, it will think. So, you might as well make sure it's thinking about good stuff. And so we worked a lot on acknowledging the butterflies because you will have some. Uh, you're, not, you're not a machine. You will be emotional. It's the Olympic Games. It's absolutely normal. But you have a choice. You can work with the butterflies or you can work against them. And when you do feel them, if you have words such as, uh, uh-oh, I don't like this, I'm in trouble, versus, oh, yes, my body's getting ready, I can do this. Well, that's the difference between being on your toes and being on your heels. Or it's, it's, it's the difference between being proactive or reactive. It's the difference between being a victim of the situation or being the aggressor, like really going for it. It's just a few words. That's all it is. And in the end, your brain believes what it hears, not necessarily what's true. So, so we got to be careful. And, you know, th there's so many examples I can give and, and how powerful this is. And just to simplify it, like, think about, think about when we go to the grocery store and what, and what you write on your list. If you, you have to go buy 20 items, are you going to write on your list what you need or what you don't need or what you don't want? Like, would you ever write on your list, like, I don't want butter, I don't want bananas, I don't want cereal, <laughs> I don't want chicken, right? Um, never. And the reason yeah. you would never write that is because that's not being productive. You want to go in there, get the stuff and get, and get out, right? Um, but that's what we do with our brains when we're negative is we're thinking about what we want to avoid or what we don't desire, or what we don't want to get into. And, but your brain is listening because if you wrote that list, I don't want bananas, butter, I don't want chicken, I don't want cereal. And you study it because that's what we do when we're negative. We're not only negative once we, you know, it's, we repeat and repeat and repeat in our minds. Uh, well, guess what? If you have a list like that and you repeat it 10, 15, 20 times in your mind, when you're going to walk into that grocery store, you're going to see everything you don't want. And so, again, it's just a great example to, to make you understand that. And I'm not saying you need to be positive all the time. What I'm saying is make sure you speak to yourself 
based on what you're searching or what you're looking to perform or what you're looking to feel. I, I could talk about this for a long time. So <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's interesting because so many other people on this podcast have brought up the same thing, and then it's about the narrative that we say to yourself. And imagine if you spoke to others the way that you speak to yourself sometimes. Imagine if you were as hard on the people around you as you are on yourself. You'd have no friends. You'd, no one would come hanging out with you. It's you know, we are our own worst critics, and the positive self talk, the the words that define our reality are so incredibly important. So building that awareness of how you speak to yourself, your awareness of that inner chatter of your mind is so critical so that you can begin to nudge it in a direction of positivity, of flow, of constructiveness, of focus. Um, and as I heard someone describe it once as like, you have all of these things in your brain all the time. And then there's this little ball of light of your attention and you just, your ball of light of attention just goes to where you want it to go. So why not send it to the areas that make you happier, that make you better or that improve, improve your life rather than those areas that beat you down. Not to say that we have to be positive all the time. You do need to deconstruct. You do need to figure out why something's not working. You do need to think about where you could get better. But at the same time, the way in which we do that can be compassionate to ourselves, which is a very different approach than what I think a lot of us are habitually doing on a day-to-day -day basis, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. Well, the metaphor I use, you're talking about the light. Um, I, I ask people, where, which direction are you pointing your flashlight in your mind? And which is the same thing. It's like, it's always a choice, right? Um, but to your point about um, positive thinking, something that is, is critical that we don't talk enough about, I find, is that one of the best ways to learn, progress, get better as a human being is through contrasts. <clears throat> we learn to appreciate winning much more when we lose once in a while. We learn to appreciate being healthy when we're sick once in a while. We learn to appreciate being loved when we've been hurt once in a while. Uh, we learn to be positive by being negative once in a while. If you're always positive all the time, it loses its meaning. And at some point, life is not about rainbows and butterflies. Like our brains are constructed to, to have highs and lows. We're made that way. And, and to a certain extent, we need to respect that. So there's a big difference between having a positive attitude and what I call having the right attitude. Hmm. So for instance, if someone is getting ready for an interview for an important job, and they, you know, they've been getting ready for this interview for like two or three weeks, like reading up some stuff, you know, doing some research about the company, yada, yada, yada. Okay. And they go through the interview and it didn't go very well. Well, the last thing I want that person to think is, oh, well, it's not the end of the world. Like, you know, there's going to be other opportunities and no, like be frustrated. If you want to be mad, ex you know, experience it, live it. Why? Because that's what your mind needs to go through at that point. And I'm not saying to stay in that mood for two or three or four or five days, but experience it at some point, then, then you transfer to, okay, all right, now I've experienced it, I lived it, and now I can carry on and think, okay, what's next? What can I get from that? How can I be better? And then be a little bit more constructive and positive. And then, and then you get on that train of, of you know, thinking a lot more, in an optimistic way that you're going to bounce back and things are going to be fine in the future. But you know, this whole, you remember the book, the secret that was yeah. published early in two thousands. So 
you know, this whole concept of law of attraction, which it's really interesting when you look at the timing of this book, because back then there was no other book like that. If you look, if you just type positive psychology books now, there are, there are hundreds of books that have been published. And the law of attraction is a good concept, but to a certain extent. What I, what, I, what I dislike about this is this idea of, you know, just throw, throw out there positivity and positivity is going to come back. There is some truth to that, but it's not entirely true. And I think, I think it's okay to go through moments where, you know, you struggle, uh, that you question yourself, that, that you are frustrated and mad because some of the best performances, Greg, that I've ever seen from some of my clients were after moments where they struggled. If you take a Mick Kingsbury's performance in Pyeongchang, arguably his best performance in his career, he finished second in the World Cup before the Olympics, which was arguably the best thing that could have happened to him. Because just before that World Cup, he had won 14 World Cups in a row and becoming maybe a little bit too confident, taking things for granted. Whoops, finished second before the games. He was ready for the games, mm. was frustrated. He hated the fact that he finished second, but it prepared him so much better for the games. Scott Moore at Tessa Virtue, they lost two months before the Olympic Games to the French skaters. They were furious. They were mad about that performance. But I had never, ever seen them so dialed in after that, that finishing second. They came back to training and it's like they were on a mission. And they went to Pyeongchang and they performed beautifully. And, and I have example after example after example. So contrasts. Is, are extremely important, and we got to talk more about this. And it's that's that's what that's what high performance is. We put athletes in situations where they're going to fail more often than they succeed, so that so that they're hungry to have success in the future. Yeah, I was actually just saying that this morning to because uh, I've got this video of my daughter rock climbing, and I was doing a session for a, a company, and um, I was like, I I take my kids out, and we do rock climbing, we do mountain biking, we do surfing, we do skiing because you are going to fall. Now, hopefully you're, hard, you're wearing a harness and a rope, so you're not going to hurt yourself, right? Or you're skiing with an instructor, so you fall down on, you're not going to fall off a cliff um, like I have done previously many, many years ago. Um, but you still want to experience that failure, getting learning how to get back up again. And it was, I, I could tell that some of the people on the call this morning were like, what, you, you have your kids fail? I'm like, yeah, no, all the time actually, as much as I possibly can. Obviously, I'm there to support them like crazy when they do fall to help them get back yeah. up and go again. But the last thing I want is them going through life thinking that it's easy because then they get to be 25 and they go, as you say, to a job interview and it doesn't go well. They have no clue how to cope. So I'm a huge fan of, of failure, of fear setting, of defining you know that reality about what if this doesn't work? Like then realizing it's not that big of a deal. Carry on. Let's go. So how, when you, when you talk about, um, Kingsbury or test virtue and, and, and more, Scott, more about that moment where things don't go well, you're months out of the games, you've got to find that motivation. Where does that motivation to take it back up a notch come from? And yes, of course, the contrast help with that, but I'm curious to know, like, how do we pull ourselves up off the ground? How do we, you know, you brush your, brush your knees off their skin. They hurt your elbows are scratched, your, yeah. you know, your confidence is bruised, your ego is taken a beating. How do you get back up and go to the next level? People often ask me, Greg, what's the definition of mental toughness? And 
the way I explain mental toughness is, um, or, or, or what's what, what's the definition of having you know the um, to, to be tough mentally, basically. And the reality is, you don't become tougher mentally when things go right. You become mentally tougher when things go sideways, and still choose to have the right attitude during that time. Because to, to, to be optimistic, positive, to have a good attitude when things are going right, that's easy. Anyone can do that. But to still have that type of mindset when you're struggling or finish second or, you know, like you've injured yourself or uh, that's not easy. And those are, those are moments where your brain becomes tougher. The same way that lifting weights, I always give that example. It's the same thing. Like if you want to have stronger biceps uh, and you're, all, you're only lifting, you know, 10 or 15 pound dumbbells and it's too easy for you. Yeah, great. You can do a lot of reps, but you're never going to get stronger. Uh, at some point, you got to lift a weight that you can't lift properly, struggle, go through it, make sure you have the proper technique. And at some point, you'll be able to lift that. Mental toughness is exactly the same thing. So, you know, to, to come back to your point about putting your kids in, in difficult situations, you're forcing them to have a good outlook about the situation in a moment where not, it's not easy to have that outlook. So, so therefore, it's going to take something bigger in the future to challenge them. And, and that's what I've been telling people with this pandemic. We have an unbelievable opportunity right now to make our brains tougher because to have a good attitude in the pandemic like this uh, is not easy. And if you find a way to do it, Think about what it's going to take later on to throw you off. It's going to take something huge. Yeah. And so when you see it this way and you see it as an investment, um, all of a sudden it's, it's, it's a different shift. Um, so, so with these athletes, that's what I would tell them after, you know, coming off those, those subpar performances. So now you have an opportunity. Now, you know, now, you know, what doesn't work. Now, you know, that if you do that again, you're going to have a similar performance, a similar result. And they're so like, you know, these athletes are so obsessed with, um, you know, understanding what they can do to get better. You know, it's, 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 it is a privilege. It really is to be around these people because they, you know, they, they give me a lot of credit for helping them perform better, but they have no idea how much I learned from being around these people. Like they're, you talk about perseverance, resiliency, you know, not taking no as an answer. It's, I, it's. It's easy to say, you know, anyone can say this, but to actually do it. Yeah. It's um, so to take it to the next level, you know, to, to come back to your, to your question. Again, I come back to the contrast thing until you're really challenged. You don't know that you need to take something to the next level. And that's, and that's the problem sometimes with people who are always good at doing things, you know, someone who never makes mistakes, who never fails, doesn't make someone great at what they do. What I tell these people is what you're doing is not hard enough. <laughs> they don't like they don't like hearing this. Oh, I can imagine that it, doesn't go over. But in the well. end, but in the end, that's it's that's exactly it. I mean, if you if you take the concept of becoming an elite performer, they're constantly pushing their limits. And the reason they do this is they know that that's that's how growth works. You push your limits, and at some point you go too far, you have to come back a little bit and then push it again, and at some point your limit becomes bigger. I had I, I was doing a podcast with someone a few months ago, and th that person asked me a question that I've never been asked before. He said, "Jeff, you're a really busy guy. 
And at some point, you got to decide where you put your focus. He said, how do you decide what deserves your time and what doesn't? Like, how, what's your filter? And I wasn't too sure what to say. And the only thing that came to mind is I purposely choose things that scare me. And, 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 and the person running the podcast was like, really? I've never heard that before. What do you mean? And then I was, you know, just listing everything that I had on my agenda, like writing a second book and like, you know, like giving talks to companies that, um, you know, they're asking me to talk about stuff that I've never talked about before. Like, you know, taking on some new clients that I have no idea what their sport is about or, you know, their profession or, you know, starting to work with the CEO of a company that, um, you know, is almost twice my age and has a tremendous amount of experience. And that's threatening to work with someone like that. But that's, that's the stuff I love because in the end it keeps me on, it keeps me on edge. And, and I don't have to force myself to reflect and to push myself to learn and to read articles and stuff because I have no choice because if I don't do that stuff, there's no way I'll be able to do my work with these people. Uh, I could not agree with you more about doing things that scare you. Like that's, I'm all, I'm always trying to think about like, I've got to keep learning something new. got to be challenged. If I'm not scared, I don't think I'm, I don't think I, I don't, I'll, I even don't feel like I'm living properly if I'm not doing something that sort of makes my adrenaline surge a little bit. Yesterday I was out mountain biking. I'm not a very good mountain biker, uh, but I'm in a, I tried a, a run on the mountain near where I live and I went out with a friend of mine and it was insane. Like literally straight down. It was like, this is nuts. This is absolutely stupid. Um, I've already broken my neck once. Don't need to do that again. So, but then I was like, and it's all berms, right? So you're just doing switchbacks all the way down and going up on the walls to be able to do it. And I was like, and I was just like, okay, no, you actually like being, being scared. Just do one, right? Just do one berm, just do go around one corner and then you can stop and then just do it. Right. And I did it the first one. I crashed, did another one crashed. And I was like, I'm just going to try the ones where I'm turning left and those worked. And then eventually I was able to do better and better and better. But point being is that doing stuff that scares you is awesome you people listening may not want to do that that's fine basically do something that challenges you is also good but i think the key to getting down that hill yesterday and the key i've been to three olympics all with television never um as an athlete but over and over and over and again as i was commentating and, and working as an analyst i saw the athletes are calm right before they start, right? So I'm looking at down this hill, I'm freaking out. I'm like, okay, no, wait, I'm just going to do one. I'm going to calm down. I'm just going to do one. Mm-hmm. And the ability to stay calm under pressure, I think is one of the crucial skills that athletes mm-hmm. have. And we're all faced with pressure, whether it's your child getting um, a bad mark on an exam and they're freaking out, or maybe something bad happens at work that you've got to deal with, or you get the news that a loved one is unhealthy, um, or, you know, we can certainly all identify with that over the last 14 months. So how do we chill? How do we keep ourselves calm under pressure? I would say there are three, three main things. I would say one, uh, the breathing. If you look at the common denominator between yoga and Tai Chi and relaxation techniques, classic relaxation techniques and mindfulness and, uh, it's, it's all based on breathing. It's all based on breathing. And, 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 and from a, from a physiology standpoint, everything's connected to your breathing system. So, you know, by breathing better, your heart rate will drop by breathing better. Your nervous system relaxes by breathing better. You know, the electricity in your brain slows down 
uh, by breathing better, you know, like you know, the blood flow in, improves. Like it, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. But most importantly, when you focus on your breath, you're automatically in the present moment. And the reason is, is we never breathe in the future and the past. We always breathe at the, at the present moment. And so athletes focus on their breath all the time. And they're not, they're not necessarily meditators. And this is, this is one thing that I've noticed that a lot of people are, are afraid of using a breathing practice is they think that they need to do this for 5, 10, 15 minutes to see some benefits. Focus on your breath for 10 seconds at a time. Focus on your breath for 30 seconds a minute if you can. And you will see a lot of benefits from that. And, and athletes are a great example. Like very few athletes have five, 10 minutes to relax, but they have 30 seconds or 10 seconds or 40 seconds. Uh, you know, some of these, these uh, hockey players that I, that I work with, I keep telling them the most important moments in hockey games are not what happens on the ice. It's what happens on the bench. Because mm. if you're able to recover quickly from what just happened, be fresh, prepare for your next shift. Hockey is a game of reaction. You, you know, 40 seconds shift, things happen so fast that the way you're going to behave on the bench is going to have a huge impact on the way you're going to be on the ice. So they, they'll focus on their breath for 45 seconds, a minute, minute and a half. I was reading something at some point about Raymond Bork, um, who, you know, the younger people might not know that name, but who is arguably one of the best defensemen ever to play the game. And he used to say that when he was on the ice, he was playing hockey. And when he was on the bench, he was breathing. Hmm. And that's all you did. He said, played hockey and I, and I breathed. <laughs> that's, that's it. And, and so, so the breathing piece, if I can give, you know, uh, some advice to people listening today is just use it all the time. Use it for 10, 15, 30 seconds. I do personally, I do timeouts about seven, eight times a day. And I typically do this be before sessions, before podcasts, before coaching sessions, before speaking gigs. Um, the same way that, you know, a hockey team would have would use a timeout later in the game for 30 seconds. The reason they do this is to calm down, come back together, make sure the plan is clear, take a sip of water, and then you go back and you're fresh. Well, the reason I do this before every coaching session is because I'm always in, always managing multiple things in a day. And it could be easy for me to be distracted when I get on this podcast, for instance. And what Greg deserves and, and the people that are listening that that this deserve you deserve my full attention you deserve gf fully present you don't deserve a gf that's distracted by the coaching i did this morning or the interview i did two two hours ago you don't deserve that and so for me those timeouts allow me to flush what was going on and get ready for what's coming up um so that, that that's one thing um using your senses we talk a lot about that with athletes when you pay attention to what you see or what you hear or what you feel, um, senses always act in the present moment. Your senses don't think. You can't think, process information, and clearly look at something at the same time. It's impossible. They're two That's different so things. Cool. Right on. And so, and so we talk a lot about this. Like with with, um, I've been working with track and field a lot, and for sprinters, the the greatest sprinters in the world when they're in the blocks. They're not waiting for the gun to go. They're just listening. They're just paying attention to hearing from their ears. And as soon as the gun goes, they don't need to tell themselves to go. They know. As soon as they hear that, that goes inside. Bang, they're gone. So I was working with a sprinter at some point, and he, was, he wanted to improve his starts. And I asked him, I said, well, 
what's, what are you thinking about when you're in the blocks? What's going on? And he said, what I'm waiting for the gun to go off. I said, well, did you know that when you're waiting, you're anticipating the future? Is it coming? Is it coming? Is it coming? Is it coming? Bang. Oh, it's there. Oh, I got to go. Well, that represents about 15 hundredths of a second. You know, that, that time that you're losing. Think about like when you're waiting at the grocery store in line, you would rather be at the cash register paying and, and leaving. So you're not in the present moment. You're forecasting. You're, you're ahead. You're in the future. Well, waiting in the blocks is the same thing. So for someone who's waiting for someone, waiting for the bus, waiting for their turn to go, you're not in the present moment. You're in the future. Um, so census is great for that. And uh, we talked about it a little while ago, but, um, you know, your, your self-talk, like, you know, to make sure that you have cues, words, things you can come back to, to recenter. And athletes are great for that. They all have cues. They all have these buzzwords that they'll use to bring their focus back and what they need to be paying attention to. So, yeah. Awesome. We could keep going for hours. We'll have to have you back. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book, Train Your Brain Like an Olympian, which we have here? Thank you so much for sending this over. I'm working my way through it. I'd just love to hear about the book and how people can get in touch if they want to follow your work. Yeah, so so the book um, actually, <laughs> it, uh, it happened by peer pressure. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, I'm not a writer. I don't like writing. I'm a, I'm a talker. I, I like to use my mouth, not my words. And... Um, but through my, my public speaking, I always had people come up to me saying, like, do you have a book? Can we know more? Like, uh, so at some point, I kind of had no choice. So, uh, so I wrote the, the French edition two years ago, and the English edition just came out this January 2021. And in the end, it's about explaining how these mental skills that I teach elite athletes, how we can use this in the workplace. So when you talk about, like, managing pressure and being focused and being self-confident, being motivated, having a good attitude, being resilient. Well, I would argue it's just as important for someone in the workplace than for an Olympian. Like, you know, people in the workplace are on all the time. You know, they're going through these challenges regularly. And, you know, our brains are the motor to performance. You know, you can be, you can be someone, you know, let's say you're, um, you're, uh, you're a lawyer and you're really bright. You have a, no a lot of knowledge. Um, but if you can't manage yourself in pressure moments, you can't access that knowledge. You can't access that brightness and, and, and everything, you know, so to learn to stay calm and to pay attention to the right stuff and to be confident before you go into court or before you're going to have to deal with a client, those mental skills are crucial in order to get into your full potential. So um, so I wrote a book, a book about it. And th the way I wrote the book was very important because I find that a lot of these books in sports psychology, performance psychology, positive psychology, they remain a little bit abstract. And a lot of them are preachy. It's like, you know, seven habits of successful people, which, yeah, okay, true. These seven habits can help you, but it's not by doing these seven habits that you're going to become amazing. And I'm sorry, that doesn't work that way. It's everyone's different. Everyone needs um, you know, a different way of going about high performance. So the way I wrote the book is more about, I just shared, you know, 250 pages of examples of stuff that works for athletes, circus artists, surgeons, police enforcers, because uh, I work with all kinds of people in high pressure situations. And I let 
I let the reader decide what works for them. And, and, and as you know, through reading it, there's a lot of uh, pictures that are hand-drawn by me, the same way that if you're in my office, because I use a whiteboard all the time and always drawing some stuff because, you know, human beings are visual learners, right? And when we talk about mental skills, sometimes, you know, psychology is abstract. It really is. Like, it's difficult to understand what pressure is and confidence. And um, so through images, it, it, it supports a lot of these stuff, the, the stuff that I'm explaining in the book. And, and I wrote it uh, as if I'm speaking to you. Uh, that was very important for me as well, because I want the reader to feel like they're with me uh, as they're reading the book. So uh, the, 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 the feedback has been amazing. And I'm ironically, you know, this wasn't supposed to come out during the pandemic because the French version came out just before the pandemic started. But I'm kind of happy that it came out at this timing because, you know, people need it. So, yeah, it's been fun. Right on. That's awesome. Um, I highly recommend everyone check it out. It's perfect for the people that listen to this podcast. I mean, it's exactly the type of stuff that resonates with this group. So you will absolutely love it. JF, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I know that you're busy. You've got tons of stuff going on. I'll put all your website and social media links in the show notes, but uh, really appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom with us today, buddy. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Greg. Ray Zahab, good to see you, buddy. Thanks for hanging out with us. Glad to be here. I'm stoked to be here. It's been a long time since we chatted. Yeah, so, totally. Uh, you know, for all of your viewers, Greg and I go back a long way and uh, I've done many projects together. I'm very excited to uh, say that there'll be some in the future, I hope, near future, now that things are opening up. But yeah, hey. we have to get back out there and do another expedition. I was actually looking the other day. It's been like way, 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 way too long since we've since I've taken your blood. So I definitely need to take some more of your blood soon. That would be you're awesome. You're kind of like a you're like a science vampire. <laughs> like it's like a sampire. You're a sampire. You're like a, a whole new field. You're a sciencey vampire. You know that likes to take blood, and it's like you relish in the thought of taking people's blood. It's good though. It's good because we get information from you. You know, Tell me what happened really up in Ellesmere. Like, walk me through that because it looked like a super epic expedition, but the conditions were crazy. The snow yeah, was you know, weird. Like, tell me what happened. You and I have talked about stuff like this so many times on expeditions. And the reality is, and anybody who's watching knows this, when you're pushing yourself or challenging yourself in a new way or doing something that you know, it's untested waters or you're doing something maybe in your own life that's different. Sometimes it goes great. Sometimes the rocket explodes, right? And it's just not the way you want things to go, but it, it does happen. And for this expedition, Kevin and I were very well prepared um, just to give people a landscape of what we were hoping to accomplish this winter, which we will accomplish next winter, was a complete crossing of Ellesmere Island at its coldest time of year mostly over land, Ellesmere Island in the Canadian North. Look it up, it's a landmass that's really, it's at the very, very top of Canada. The next stop is the North Pole kind of thing. About 1,000, 1,200 kilometers our route in total with all the zigzags and everything else as we go. And we would be self-contained, not unsupported. Self-contained meaning we would drag these giant sleds with all the gear and food we need to survive but we were supported in the sense that we had a filmmaker with us. And our filmmaker was with our Inuit friends on snow machines and they would be moving, not right beside us, they would, you know, it's only so much film footage you can get of two dummies skiing across the Arctic when it's, you know, unbelievably cold out. 
So instead they would get a shot of us and they'd go off and they'd be looking for polar bears and wolves and, and muskox and everything else. So Kevin and I have been doing these projects like crossing Antarctica to the South Pole, crossing Lake Baikal in Siberia in winter. I've done tons of winter Arctic expeditions in Canada, Russia, and other places over the years. So we were very well prepared for what we needed to do. And this is one of those things where, you know, you're so prepared. You've got this is what your brain is saying, right? And we had all the right food, all the right gear that was dialed. We trained, we were physically fit, we were prepared. But we got there and we started out on this fjord, this icy section of frozen ocean, um, and headed towards land and realized that the quality of the snow, the snow crystals themselves were like being on broken glass and sandpaper. So you're pulling 250, 260, 270 pounds of gear and food behind you. And when you're pulling it across sandpaper, it's very, very difficult and not impossible, but enough that we had 50 days of food, 50 days of fuel. It's minus 50 every day. It's minus 30, you know, minus 30, sorry, during the day as, as a peak minus 50 at night, you got to get there. I mean, you don't, you don't mess around on those temperatures. You've got 50 days and our mileage was not enabling us to, to get there. We were not going to get there the way we were doing the project. So when we hit the overland section and realized the sleds wouldn't move at all, we relied on our team and our film team to be able to bring our gear forward. But because it was so cold, we remained supported by them for this giant overland section as we headed north. It was so cold that the, the snow machines kept breaking down. Um, they were freezing, sometimes not starting. And it became abundantly clear to us that there was a number of factors that were not going our way. We were not going to have enough food and fuel. We were not, um, you know, it, it, as Kevin said, we'd have to, we figured out at some point we were going to have to turn around and lick our wounds. I mean, there's just no way that we were going to physically be able to do things the way we wanted to. Plus this added safety element where the entire team could be impacted by what may or may not happen with these snow machines. So we had to make the very difficult decision and it's a much longer story. I don't want to take up all of your time. But we made the very difficult decision that we were going to have to turn back. And this was not an easy journey to get out there. Not an easy journey to get back over glaciers, over, you know, uh, broken snow and, and rocks, rocks everywhere. And we get back out after 11 hours on these snow machines because we were weeks on the land. And we get back out there a few weeks on the land and we get back out there and we get into the ocean where it's frozen and one of those snow machines just blows up. And we knew right then, oh my God, we'd abandoned it out on the ice. We made our way back into Grease Fjord and we said, oh my God, we made the right decision. And sometimes making those hard decisions, those calls, it's very difficult to do in the moment, but deep down inside, you know, it's the right thing that you have to do. I've done, Greg, now what, 31, 32, 33, something like that, expeditions all over the world. Yeah, a handful of times things have not worked out the way I wanted to, but I don't I don't do projects that I know for me are predictable. I love adventure and exploration because I want to learn and I want to test myself and I want to be in these places in the Arctic in winter. I want to be across the deserts in the middle of summer when yeah, it's sometimes 55, 60 degrees Celsius. You may or may not make it, you know, but you gotta know when to pull the chute. And so there was no way to button it up that Kevin and I were going to take, put others at risk for our dream, but we also were not willing to compromise on our expedition. Instead, we wanted to learn from it, go back next year, which we've got a whole new plan. I won't tell you what it is yet. So maybe you'll have me back on at some point, but we're working on a new plan and we're really excited to go after it instead of 
going back and being depressed and all the money that's been spent, the time spent, the commitments, the friends that were involved in making this dream a reality, instead of going back and saying, oh, you know what, we failed. I think you probably saw the post the other day. I used a quote from a buddy of mine. There's no such thing as fail. It's your first attempt in learning, right? And I think it's just such a brilliant acronym that a buddy of mine is a teacher and a podcaster in the US had, had shared with me. And so I, I, I look at this with excitement instead with this project. And I look at it as an opportunity at my stage of my career. I'm 53 years old. I'm still out there trying to do these hard things while I can. And I'm challenged in a whole new way. This expedition was going to be very, very difficult to complete but we're willing to learn and adapt and make the dream happen. And I think that that's the critical piece. We live in an era where everything is polished on social media into positive outcomes and unrealistic sometimes expectations. And instead, you know, I said to myself when I posted about this recently, I, it's, I don't have something to prove. I'm doing this because I really wanna do it. You know, I, I can pull a heavy sled. I, I've proven that before. It's not about that. It's about seeing Ellesmere at this time of year. It's about connecting my expedition to students. It's about learning something for myself. That's why I'm doing this. And if we continue to pursue things and think in that avenue and remove all those other things that are implemented or imposed upon us about how we think things are supposed to go, I think there's great opportunities for all of us to learn, you know? Yeah, totally. And there's so much there that we can unpack. And, uh, but I'll, I'll start here. And these shows are normally 10 minutes long, but we're just going to blow through that because there's too much to talk about. And I know that, that we always like, there's so much good stuff. And I want to begin with the decision-making under pressure because it's life and death. There is no guarantee of success. I love the fact that you go and do things that are hard enough that there's a significant chance that it won't work out, that you will fail. By the way, research came out this year that shows that the fastest rates of learning are associated with the greatest number of failures on that path. So anyone that like associates failure with negativity is, I think, completely missing the boat on that one. So I love that you brought that up. But I'd love to know about when you and Kevin were encountering those difficulties, when the plan was not going according to plan, when the ski machine, the snow machine exploded or like blew up basically or froze. All of those begin to accumulate and you're faced with a decision. How do you make a good decision under pressure? Because that's something I think everyone can relate to. And whether it's your career or, you know, something going on with your children or how you cope with the world right now and, you know, all these sorts of things. I think that process that you and Kevin used to make that decision would be fascinating. I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that. Well, it's a great it's a great question. I have to tell you, and, I, and I've, I've been frozen in my tent on many expeditions or boiling in the heat and many expeditions and laid there and wondered, am I just getting old? I feel like I'm less reactive, emotionally reactive in decision-making on expeditions. And you know what I come to realize? It's not really an age thing. It's an experience thing. It's being experienced in making decisions that are both uh, gratifying and sometimes um, demoralizing. And you have to be able to be able to swing both ways on that and be able to uh, make those decisions in both aspects, whether it's a decision that's a positive and happy outcome that you wanna have, or it's the decision that you're making that's like, you know, I'm pulling the plug on this thing, I'll come back and fight another day. It's knowing when to make the decision and then being confident in the decision-making and in the adaptive process. You brought up, you know, 
as we had to change the way we were doing things. So when we hit land a week into the expedition and realized, oh, oh, there's no way we can do this thing self-contained. We discussed it with each other and we said, okay, here's, here's what's in front of us. We could pull up stakes and go home now. Or we came here, four years of planning, a year of dedicated training, tons of fundraising. Let's adapt. We're on an expedition. We are exploring. We are on an adventure at a time of year going over land when really no one ever does. Let's adapt. What do we need to do to adapt to achieve our goal? Okay, well, we're going to have to get rid of these loads for now. Take, you know, daytime supplies, firearms, in case of polar bears, all that stuff, and be prepared to move one day at a time as opposed to this grand parcel of stuff that we're dragging behind us that will take care of us for the entire 50 days. So be willing to adapt and change the context of the expedition, knowing that later in the expedition, we'd take all that stuff back. We'd, we'd be unsupported again later on when stuff got lighter, conditions got better over the course of a month, month and a half, and then you're rocking again, right? The point where we had to finally make the plug, by the t- pull the plug, by the time you get to that point in the expedition, your decision's already been made. It's just, it's a culmination of factors that's kind of like stewing and the soup has just been simmering. And you know, you, you're going through each night of the expedition, you're taking stock of where things are at, how things are going, and you're having those frank discussions with one another, or if I'm on a solo expedition with myself, and you're saying, okay, probability is someone's gonna get hurt. Probability is something bad's gonna happen. And we have to be honest with ourselves. We can't, you know, in my younger, and I'm not, and I'm not equating this with age, but you know, younger as in when I was doing my first four or five expeditions, the, the, I wouldn't have processed the information the same way. I would have been like, down with that, we we'll go anyhow. Yeah, You know, and now it's like, whoa, whoa, slow down. Hang on a sec. Let's look at this. Let's look at this strategically. All these years of being on expeditions of Tommy, this is not going to work out this time. So don't screw it up. And we, turns out, made that right decision, you know? Awesome. Next thing I want to dig into is in a world where so many people are caught up, as you accurately described, in looking at the perfection of curated filtered social media and you know only people basically you're, you're only ever seeing the best of the best of the best and very occasionally someone might post a failure and but it, it's just a very strange world where we're not exploring we're not having adventures uh it's I think there's so much value in exploration. I think there's so much value in having adventures and whether it's crossing Ellesmere Island or going for a run on a new path that you've never been on before or whatever it is, just having that sense of exploration and adventure is so critically important for us, but also especially I think for our kids and our 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 communities, which is devoid of that right now in our current social media curated safe uh, environment would love your thoughts on that because obviously that's what you stand for. That's what you do. That's what you love. That's the why behind what you do, which is super cool. And I think that's something that everyone can maybe install a little bit of in their life would be super helpful for them. So you're saying, so come at me again. So like, what's the question basically? So the question I would say is, Ray, what, what, what is it about adventure and exploration that's so valuable? I mean, and I know it for you. And what do you think that, why do you think that could be valuable for other people to install in their lives? Okay, so here's the thing. When we started Impossible to Possible, and I don't expect anybody here to know what it is I'm going to tell you, <laughs> Impossible to Possible was an organization that Bob Cox and I started in 2008. It's a nonprofit organization. 
And Doc Wells has been on many of these trips with us. We take young people on expeditions around the world, 16 to 21 years of age. They go and they learn about a subject. They go on an adventure, like trekking through the Amazon jungle, learning about biodiversity or, um, you know, hiking the mountains of California and learning about ecosystem services or going to Rajasthan and learning about access to healthcare. Uh, all of these expeditions are 100% free. Everyone's a volunteer that goes on the expedition. And the goal of the expeditions is to not only inspire and educate and empower young people, that's our sort of three words that frame impossible to possible, but it's to take those expeditions and put them in classrooms around the world. So 16 year olds are connecting with 25,000 other kids around the world in classrooms that are following their adventure. And what we've learned over time is that those young people that are maybe in urban areas, highly urban areas, whatever, or maybe they're living uh, in a First Nations community or they're living um, you know, um, off the coast of Washington state in a small town. They all connect with these young people and see in them this excitement that they're on an adventure. And what we've come to realize through the program is that access to outdoors for everyone and being in outdoor spaces provides learning opportunities and provides an opportunity to learn about oneself, not only the world, but about oneself in ways that really you can't any other way. It's so visceral and experiential just being outside. And sadly, a lot, I, I, probably a majority of young people don't have free access to the outdoors, which is something that I think is, is something that really needs to be addressed. By the term adventure, it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical adventure or expedition, in my opinion, that someone embarks on. I think when if you provide young people with an opportunity to challenge themselves in any way possible, um, they thrive on that. It's it's a natural human instinct of survival to want to, I mean, survival is all about finding at the most basic level, you know, genetically as human beings, food, sleep, shelter, right? And so you, in pursuit of those things, you achieve new milestones. Um, and I think that someone in their own life in the modern era, when they're in pursuit of things that are uh, challenging yet rewarding, whether it's in music, the arts, sports, whatever, academics, um, you are on an adventure in life and you can glean so much personal satisfaction and growth from that. So my layer of context is taking young people into the outdoors and, and also actually with my guiding business, Capic One, taking adults, people our age, onto expeditions of their own and discover at 45 or 50 that, hey, we still are learning, right? We never stop learning till, till you're six feet under. You don't really stop learning. And so um, it's that, that's my way of connecting people to that concept that I'm trying to share and probably doing a horrible job of it. But this idea that when we're on an adventure in life, it's an opportunity to learn so much more about ourselves than we think we know, you know? That's awesome. Uh, Ray, if anyone wants to learn more about what you're up to and connect with you, uh, where can they look? I am I am sensitive to your time. I know you've got tons of stuff going on and uh, just want to make sure that people can connect with you but not take you up want, too much you wanna, of your time. You want to go get lunch, don't you? That's what this is about. All you're thinking of is, I got to <laughs> get this guy right off of here. You know, we'll get back. <laughs> so, uh, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. Obviously, I think I, I, I if I press the buttons right, I'm streaming this to, to LinkedIn. You can reach out to me there. Um, I'm on Instagram, obviously, as everyone is Facebook, and I have a website, raiseahab.com. I'm easy to find. So uh, if anybody has any questions, please reach out. 
Cool. Thanks, Ray. Really appreciate it, buddy. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, wisdom, inspiration. And uh, we'll do another one soon to hear about the next iteration of the, uh, the Ellesmere adventure.